if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 18 through 20. It's been a while since we've been in Ephesians. We're back there today. If you just started coming over in the summer, uh, this is news to you that we're in Ephesians. Uh, what happened was we studied a text of scripture. It was Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, speaking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that, I believe the Lord led us to launch into a summer of the Holy Spirit, studying in detail his person and his work, everything from the gifts of the Spirit to the work of the Holy Spirit, the filling, the baptism, all of those things. And it was a, it was a great time together. Uh, and now we are back in Ephesians where that knowledge of the Holy Spirit, of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, now will be invested in words such as this, where we're told to be filled with the Spirit for the purpose of relationships, for the purposes of vocation, of job places, of uh, marriage, of family, of friends, of all of those things, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Hopefully we now have this working knowledge to jump from uh, as we dive deeper into the Apostle Paul's exhortation. But before we get into relation, some of those relationships, we're speaking now about spirit-filled corporate worship. And our text, again, is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Let's read this together. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's our, our verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we revisit the text that launched us into a an in-depth study of the summer of the Holy Spirit. We pray right now that your Holy Spirit would ever be present. We believe that you are God. We believe that you are present, dwelling among the church, among the churches. We ask in relation to that, God, that you would open our eyes to be more aware of your presence among us. And we don't want to miss what's going on right before us underneath us, in front of us, around us, as your spirit is moving in the city of Santa Barbara, among many other churches who call on your holy name. We're so thankful to be a part of that, and we ask that you would keep us from being spiritually asleep, spiritually sleeping in the midst of what you are doing. You are the Lord. Holy Spirit, align our hearts and our eyes now to what God is doing. You are great, God. And if all we did was gather around you today and behold you in your glory, it would be enough for us. The Lord God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, we worship you today and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would teach us more of what that looks like as we seek and endeavor to worship you together. We pray these things in your name, Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, 
after the Summer of the Spirit, we had a couple sermons last Sunday and the Sunday before that in which we really wanted to drill down deep and look specifically at camp, uh, uh, as a campus at where the Lord would have us go and where we have been. Uh, if you were here for that, a couple Sundays ago we spoke about revival, uh, God's heart for revival. We looked at the history of revivals. Uh, the biblical precedent, why we should want revival to happen, what revival costs Christians when it actually does happen, and we prayed for it to happen. We sought the Lord for those things to happen. The Sunday after that, which was last Sunday, we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 4 of uh, Paul's exhortation to a church just like us in a similar situation, saying, hey, uh, praise God for where you've been and where, you're, uh, where you are now, but God wants more in your life and for your life, and so you should be, you should be unsatisfied with the status quo, right? You should be, uns- there should be a sense of unsatisfaction, not in God, but in the way things are. In other words, we should always be wanting more out of this life. Like God, we believe God in his greatness and in his mercy and in his love wants to pour out more, so we should be longing for more. And so that's kind of been the tone and tenor coming out of the summer of the spirit. More, 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 more. Well, maybe... In the wake of some of those Sunday mornings, you've been hitting, perhaps, maybe for some of you, you've been hitting a wall. Maybe on Sunday, it's easy to talk about more, 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 and revival, 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 and excel still more, and all of these things that we've been uh, anticipating and excited over, but perhaps for some of you, you're not no longer in a place of revival and excelling still more, but perhaps you're in a place of fatigue, if you were to be completely honest. Perhaps after uh, leaving the initial Sunday morning gathering, the, the reality of things has hit you, hit you and you re- realize it's been two weeks and there is no revival, as you've read in the history books. Perhaps you recognize that it could be years, decades, a lifetime of labor and prayer before revival hits the city that you reside in, in any meaningful way, and you start to, uh, you're starting to settle into the reality of the moment that this is, is this is no, this is not a sprint. This Christianity thing, it's, it's not a weekend endeavor. This is a marathon. It takes labor, and it takes disappointment, and it takes walls that you hit into, and 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 have to leap over by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it. And it's, it's a long endeavor. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And perhaps you've hit this, this feeling of disappointment because your life has been a sprint up until this point. And then you wake up after Sunday, and it's Monday. And after the initial excitement of being crowded in a room of excited people who all want what you want, opening up a Bible, drinking coffee, worshiping with just euphoria and excitement and ecstasy in the room over God, Monday morning hits. And with Monday come all the things that you left behind on Saturday. Chaos. Confusion. Hardship. Loss of control. Disappointments in life. 
and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and Thursday. Is it true for some of you, as it is sometimes for me, that I feel myself being jerked along sometimes because Sunday is like so happy, ah, right? And then Monday is so real, it feels like. Is there anything in that shift that we go through? Just Sunday morning, yeah, to Monday morning, oh. That is in our desire, the sense that we feel like we have to put upon our shoulders those things that we want to happen. We've been talking about revival. Okay, Monday morning, I'm going to make it happen. Never it happens. I want life change in my relationships, so I need to be the one who brings it. I want to repair my marriage. I will do it. I'm I'm putting it on my shoulder. There's sometimes a sense in which the problems in life that we get so stirred up with to face on Sunday, we somehow have to hoist upon our shoulders. Is there any wonder why we find ourselves burnt out on Saturday afternoon, coming into the church theater, gathering with our heads sometimes barely held up? We're burnt out. Because for some of us, in a very real way, we feel like the burden of all of those good things that we so desperately want, that we know God wants, we've somehow deceived ourselves into thinking that it's up to us to bring those things to existence. And I'm here this morning to tell you that it is by the hand of the Holy Spirit of God that all true and lasting change exists. That if there is anything that I could do on this summer morning, fall, it's all the same. (laughs) (laughs) If there's anything that I could do, that for me it would be success, is if the burden of that weight were to be removed from your shoulders that you are not the one who's supposed to fix your marriage, fix your job, fix your broken dreams, fix your disappointments in life, fix the church, fix the city of Santa Barbara, bring revival. The Holy Spirit, and if I can simply direct you to the entire summer that we spent together, telling one another and learning together that it is by an outflow and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God that true change exists. And for the rest of us, we're called to sit back in a very real way and enjoy the process. It affects us in self-sacrificial ways, yes, But ultimately, the work and the the power is brought by the Holy Spirit, the only one who can bring lasting change. So I pray that that burden is lifted from your shoulders. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we gather on a Sunday morning. We have a lot of vocabulary at this church that gives weight to the church scattered. We, we put a lot of weight in the church being on mission from Monday to Saturday, scattered in vocations and in relationships. We put a lot of value in that, but not to the exclusion of the church gathered. This is just as important in the mind of God, and we need this. 
if only to remember what I just said, if only to remember uh, that the Spirit of God is the one from whom our power comes from, that it's from the presence of God that we are healed, that it's in the presence of God that we get joy, that our hearts are set free, that the darkness is pushed back, that our souls are wedded with an appetite for his loveliness and holiness and righteousness, and the list goes on. What do you want in this life that has eternal purpose? It comes from being in the presence of God. There is no other eternal value in anything else. And we come here every Sunday to remember that and to recalibrate our hearts that go astray to that truth. We're here right now in this very second to say we need God together so that we can face Monday afternoon. to remember those things and to recalibrate ourselves to what the spirit of the living God is doing through Christ for the glory of God and for the joy of his church. And some of us need some joy this morning. I do. And so we're here for the express purpose of retuning ourselves to the music of heaven. Have you ever heard a, a symphony or an orchestra tune their instruments before they actually start to play. When they play, it's, it's very beautiful. It's lovely. It's maybe arguably one of the most beautiful sounds this side of heaven. But do you ever hear when they tune their instruments? It doesn't always start off so lovely. It actually starts off with some tension, you know? Some violinists roll into the building. Their violins have been, you know left in the case, maybe they fell out of tune, maybe they had a different tuning, maybe uh, someone's guitar was warped by the, uh, or instrument was warped by the sun or by the warmth or whatever, and you've got hundreds, and sometimes a hundred people in a building playing these instruments, and at first they begin, to, uh, they begin warming up, and just being a fraction of a note off from everybody else, you can absolutely hear it, and it just, it's like claws on a chalkboard, you know? just a little bit off, and you're like, that's that's not right. I mean, I'm not a musician, but I know that that's not right. Maybe you've never heard this this before. I want you to hear it for yourself. Uh, John, can you just play a track of an orchestra warming up? And I want you to hear this first sound. Do you hear that note? Everyone is going to be tuning according to that note. Here come a couple people. Okay, there's something. Come some more. Oh, there's a sour note. Did you hear that? Oh, there's a cough. Oh, don't do that. It's starting to get better. Everyone's tuning their instruments in unison. There's one note that started at the very beginning. Coming together. Okay, thanks, John. That first instrument was an oboe. An oboe has, aside from its regular responsibility of playing with the rest of the symphony, of sounding an A note so that everybody else in that orchestra can tune their instruments to that one single note. So that all of this dissonance, all of this tension that existed at the very beginning is all of a sudden coming in harmony to one unifying single note. That is why we come together on a Sunday morning. 
week after week after week after week. Not so that we can drink some coffee, not so that we can slap each other on the back, not even just so that we can sing and show each other how good we are at singing or how bad we are at singing, whatever side of the fence you fall on. Not so that we can just feel inspired by a sermon, not so that we can meet other people, even though all of those things happen and they are wonderful and glorious. We've come to retune our instruments to the oboe of Jesus Christ and his glory. After Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday of being warped by the sun, of being bent by the culture that we live in, of being just tossed around by our job places and broken relationships, we find ourselves strangely out of tune. We come here every Sunday so that we can fixate our eyes together on Jesus Christ sounding the note of heaven. We find ourselves in tune with Christ and not just in tune with Christ but with each other. We gather every Sunday to recalibrate. The thing is, Jesus has already started a personal revival in every person who calls out on the name of Christ. He does this by retuning your heart. This is what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter chapter 11, verse 19 through 20. I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a a heart of flesh. Verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The Holy Spirit is stepping, invading your space. Everyone who's put their faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit, what happens in that moment is he invades your heart. He stops you from that destructive trajectory that you were going, and he changes the heart of stone that was inside you. He uproots the fallow ground. He takes off the blinders, and he shines a light into your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, uh, shines a light into your heart, revealing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you, in that instant, are changed. Personal, inward revival. But then he brings you together with the family of Christ. Whereas individual instruments, to further the analogy, we retune corporately back to God. A.W. Tozer in his book, uh, in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, was speaking about corporately beholding God. And he, he's that type of person that just loves just the, the inner space of the Uh, the corner of the room just being with God and the presence of God and just being there forever and just beholding. And He got some pushback from some people like, hey, the church is corporate. Why are you just enjoying the Lord and beholding God and speaking about it as this personal thing? And Tozer argued that it's the personal that affects the corporate. It's a bunch of lights being... being a, a bursting in the heart of individual people that come together that create this corporate unity. He would go on to say, it's a very long quote, but he just says it better than I can read the whole thing. He says, I don't want to leave the impression that the ordinary means of grace have no value. They most assuredly have. Private prayer should be practiced by every Christian. Long periods of Bible meditation will purify our gaze and direct it. Yes, church attendance will enlarge our outlook and increase our love for others. Service and work and activity, all are good and should be engaged in by every Christian. But the bottom of all of these things, 
giving meaning to all of these things will be the inward habit of beholding God. A new set of eyes, so to speak, will develop within us, enabling us to be looking at God while our outward eyes are seeing the scenes of the passing world. Then he goes on to explain how that, when everybody is in that place, it begins to translate into unity. He says, has, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away from each other to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly become if they were just obsessed with one another and working on personal things and working on each other and chasing after all of these things in the world. He is saying the way that we are transformed, the way that we experience unity, the way we experience every good thing that we desire in this life is by corporately causing, our, having our eyes fixated on the glory of Jesus Christ by retuning ourselves together. And how does a Christian retune but through corporate worship? And this is the argument I believe Paul the Apostle is making. Look at, look at this with me in verse 18 and 19. It tells us, don't be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Comma, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Then he goes on to say, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We'll talk about t- verse 21 next week. But he, he, he dumps in our lap all of these participles of uh, of action, participating in what? Corporate worship. Singing, speaking to one another in song. Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks. In other words, Paul is clearly and emphatically saying that the result of being filled with the Spirit is corporate worship. This has incredible implications for the life of the church. Because Paul isn't making a suggestion. He's not saying, okay, be filled with the Spirit, evangelize, save the world, go to the nations, do all of this stuff. And then if you have time, maybe get together, you know, grab a latte, hang out in the floor, and, you know, sing a couple diddlies. He's saying, no, the results and the fruit of being filled with the Spirit is not a suggestion, it is an identification that there will be the church gathering together, singing praise to the glorious name of the Father in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit. Now what does he mean by corporate worship? He he speaks about it a little bit in verse 19, right? Uh, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. I want to talk about singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. This implies that at the very core of what we do as a church, we are God-centered in a very real way. That we should be able to trace everything that we do together to find as its origin, as its motivation, God-centeredness. 
that there is this vertical relationship with the church and with God. When we come together on a Sunday morning, there is a trajectory. There is an entrancement. There is a captivation. Whether it is in the lobby speaking to one another, whether it is... uh, 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 our kids just uh, getting the word of God and playing together, whether it is opening the Bible and studying the word, whether it is singing, everything that we are doing as a church should be upward focused. That as its motivation, as its desire, as its origin must be God and not ourselves. This means we don't come here primarily for our own needs or our own ambitions, or our pet peeves, or our pet desires, or our 10 uh, bullet point list of things we want done, or even our passions, or even our dreams. And some of those things are important, but what is primary for the church is our focus being on God and God alone. The church is a church that must be obsessed with the glory of God. tells us in verse 20 that we are to always be giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, meaning that it's not just upward and outward, but it is praise-oriented, meaning that we come together, yes, with a focus on God, but for what? To praise the name of the Lord, to thank him for all that he has done, to praise him for what he's going to do, to exalt his name. In order to do those things, we need to know who he is. So that's why we study the scriptures. Why do we study the scriptures? To get some head knowledge and to feel better about ourselves? No, so that we can exude praise into the lap of our Father. So that we can overflow with exaltation so that we could be excited about who he is. That's why we exist. That's it. There's a lot of other things that, you know, happen as a result of that, but that is the center and the core. And you say, yeah, but I, I, I have a broken life. I just lost my spouse. I just lost my job. I just lost all of my money. I, I'm, I don't have a place to say. I have all of this stuff. Like, doesn't God care about all of those things? Absolutely he does. He's numbered your hair, the hair on your head. He knows you're going in and you're going out. He is more in tune with your life than you are. Psalm 139 says that he is intimately acquainted with your ways. I don't think half of us in this room are intimately acquainted with our own ways. I barely know what I'm going to do with my day when I wake up. God is intimately acquainted with everything that I am about to do and everything that I've done in this life. And still he loves us. In Matthew, Jesus says, if a sparrow falls out of, the tr- out of a tree and dies, he is aware of it. How much more so is he aware of your problems? God loves his people. He loves the hard things going on in your life. He loves the silly things that everybody laughs at. He cares about those things. But you know how he deals with them? By getting you to behold him. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other peripheries will be added unto you. God fixes the world by getting the world to hunger and thirst for him. uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question that's asked in that, some of you know this very popular question and answer, says what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to 
glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Meaning there's some sort of correlation between glorifying him and enjoying him. I love the way Piper put it. He put it better than anybody could ever put it. I almost want to tattoo it on my forehead. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's desire isn't to ignore our problems, it's to retune our instruments to the glory of heaven in God. And he does that through corporate worship. That is why, by the way, we have such a long second set of worship. Growing up uh, in churches that I, I grew up in, it was typical and traditional to have worship on the front end, and it was only maybe two or three songs and at the end, after the sermon, it would be like a happy clappy, like, okay, see you later, as everybody stood up and left. And there was almost a sense in which, like, music is designed to wake people up. It's basically no better than coffee. It wakes people up for the real meat of the gathering, which is the sermon. Now, you should know at this point that we put tremendous, incredible value on the teaching of the Word of God. We take up, you know, 40 minutes, sometimes 50, <laughs> on the explanation of the word of God because we believe that the church must be centered around God's word and that he speaks to us that this is primary. But we do not believe here at Reality that the sermon is the climactic element of the worship gathering. We believe that it leads to the climactic element part of the gathering, which is the second set of worship. Here's why. Think about this. You ever in that place where God is speaking to you, maybe uh, to you alone it feels like, maybe someone is explaining a verse of scripture, or maybe you're in a calm group and someone s says or shares something, or someone is you know, at a grocery store and they share something with you from the Lord, and it's just like, bam, the Holy Spirit pierces through your heart. Maybe they didn't even mean to say what they said to you, but the Holy Spirit has grabbed a hold of you prophetically and is speaking to you in that moment something that he wants you to know right there, and you you just want to drop to your knees in that moment. God is convicting you in a supernatural way. He's dealing with you. Maybe there's sin in your life and he's wanting you to repent. Maybe uh, there's uh, something that he's revealing to you about the future and he's causing, wanting you to marinate in that. And sometimes that happens during a sermon. And how awful would it be after that moment where the Holy Spirit has grabbed you by the ankles for me to say, okay, everybody, you're dismissed to lunch. Enjoy yourself you would immediately forget what God was doing. As soon as you left into the foyer with the chatting and the, uh, the, the speaking and the lunch and all of those other very good things, you would immediately forget what the Lord is doing. We don't want to leave that place of conviction. We don't want to leave the presence of God when he is ministering to us that deeply. We want to stay there and marinate in that. That's why we have the second set of worship. Because even though we do not meet in this church primarily for our needs, we do understand, and this is the reality of it, that we understand that a moment in the presence of God will often answer a lifetime of those needs and questions and doubts. And so we want to marinate and simmer in the presence of God and let him deal with our hearts. And for some of you, 50 to 60 of you, I count.
You're more, you're more accustomed to leaving after the sermon perhaps because you think that's the only important thing. It is an important thing. It's not the only thing. If it were, we should just have 40-minute gatherings, but we don't. We have two-hour gatherings. Why? Because we believe that God wants to work on us corporately. I know some of you got to go to the restroom after the sermon because I'm super long-winded. I'm sorry. And that's totally fine. I, I ain't tripping on that at all. But for those of you that pack your bags after the sermon and leave because you think God is done with you, I really think that you're getting ripped off. God is wanting to pull you deeper into the presence of God. And it is our experience that he seems to do his deepest work when we're able to reflect on the things that he said and to reflect his glory back on him in utter desperate praise. Please don't leave. God ain't done with you. You should also know that when we are in the presence of God in heaven, there will be no sermons. When we're gathered together with a universal church, you will not be hearing Chris Lazo's 50-minute sermons, but you will be singing. You will be overflowing and exuding excitement and euphoria and glory and honor upon the one whom your face has seen for the first time. And you will never grow tired of such things. You will grow tired of my sermons. You'll grow tired of my sermons in this life, but you'll never grow tired of the presence of the living God. There will no, be no sermons in heaven. There will be worship. We believe the sermon leads us into worship. We believe that the word of God is centered in the entire service. It's not like we're done with the word of God in the sermon. We believe that the worship is an extension of that, that God speaks to us in the sermon and he continues to speak to us and work on our hearts all throughout, especially in that second set. So our worship should be praise and it should be upward. This is where Paul seems to throw us for a loop. He says in the first part of that phrase in verse 19, to speak to one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. This might rub some of us the wrong way. Like, wait, I kind of had the idea that worship was about God, but now Paul is saying we're to sing to each other or to speak to each other with songs. That's, uh, how does that even work? Is that even right? Is that even good? When Paul says speak to one another, He's careful to use the word speak, speak to one another in songs because he's referring to a method of instruction that happens in worship. And when you are singing, when you force yourself to uh, mouth words of truth about God, you are instructing yourself and everybody else who hears you. And you ever sense this when we, uh, when we sing uh, some, of those, some of these doctrinally rich songs like the hymns, which is what Paul says, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Just that sense that you get. Sometimes I don't even want to sing it because it's so rich. I just want to look at it on screen and let it wash over me. Sometimes I need to be reminded of who God is because I have forgotten functionally in this life. I need to be reminded that he is faithful. I need to be reminded 
reminded that he is holy. I need to be reminded that he is the savior. I need to be reminded that he is all sufficient. I need to be reminded. That's why I come on Sunday morning to be recalibrated, retuned with many others who are instructing one another as we begin to sing forth the praises of the living God. And this clearly happens when we sing, right? Doctrine. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. This great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while I ever stand, no tongue could bid me thence depart. That will make your soul sing. That's the point. Is that these truths about God would make their way from your head to your heart and cause your heart to explode in praise so that you can go out from a Sunday morning into Monday knowing who your hero is. Not too long ago, uh, one of our buddies at, this, uh, at the church gave Brianna and I some uh, tickets to a, a basketball game at the Staples Center uh, to watch the Lakers play. It was during their championship season a couple of years ago when they were, when they were killing it. <laughs> and we had never been to a, a sports anything anywhere just from TV, and so this was really special for us, and we were like really close, like the, the basketball players looked like linebackers, they actually were, <laughs> it, was giant, just, it was just incredible, we were just swept up in the moment, but you, w- one of the things that I remember above all the other things was not the game and not the sports players, but the fans, and I remember, because we got there a little early, we were just observing people, and the, uh, the Staples Center brings the crazies out of Los Angeles. And I remember looking over to my right, and there was this girl with just like, dressed like she was going fine dining. Like she had uh, uh, stiletto, like high heel stilettos, and she, had, like, she was all decked out and dolled up. She had like one of those scarves. It was like uh, the round, like eternal scar- or eternity <laughs> scarf or whatever. And she wasn't even watching the game. She's just like, just looking around like she's going out to a fine steak dinner or something. And then to my left, there were some, two younger guys that were clearly buzzed, and they weren't even watching the game either. The, the whole time, they had their back to the game because they were trying to rally the whole stadium to do the wave. And it started off really disappointing because only like one or two would do it, and they'd be like, yeah. But a few minutes later, I look back, and they did it. These two drunk guys got the whole Staples Center to do the wave as thousands of people began to jump up and down, creating this wave, and they were going nuts. And I remember at the very end of the game, Kobe did what every Lakers fan wants to do. He was clutch, and he sunk that buzzer beater. And when he did it, Brianna and I jumped out of our seats with thousands of other people jumping out of our seats. And I remember grabbing the guy next to me by the shoulder, going, ah, ah, 
This is a guy I would have never talked to, right? I didn't talk to him the whole time he was there. I'm not even that obsessed with sports, but something was staring me up in that moment. Bree was jumping up and down. I was slapping people, throwing drinks, and we were just going nuts. There was a sense of camaraderie that came out of that. There was a sense in which I was unified to this complete stranger that I'll probably never talk to again, and yet it wasn't because of anything that he did, and it wasn't because of anything that I did. It was that we were gathered in this building around the fame of another person. This is what we do on Sunday morning. We rally ourselves, recalibrate ourselves, refocus and retune ourselves around the glory, not of you and certainly not of me, but of the worth and eternal beauty and splendor of Jesus Christ. And when we leave this place, much like we left the Staples Center, we leave with eternal joy, not just happiness. We leave retuned and refocused to go into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Some of you are in desperate need of joy this afternoon. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now because there's this beautiful and lovely mystery in Christianity and in the gospel in which our greatest good is wrapped up, not in what we're told by culture, in getting our own, focusing on ourselves, being egotistical, forging ahead, being the best we can be, has nothing to do with us. The best that we receive in this life from the Lord comes when we are others-focused, specifically God-focused, is when we experience all that the Lord has uh, has for us. That's why we gather on a Sunday morning, is to push away the inward curvature of the heart on ourselves out onto the glory and splendor and faithfulness and goodness of God. And in that, you will find healing. You'll find the joy you've been looking for. You'll find the peace that's been evading you on Monday afternoon and on Tuesday and Wednesday. But this is why we need Sunday morning is because our tendency is to focus on our problems and on our successes and on our, ourselves, and we need to be retuned to the melody of heaven on his perfect obedience, on Christ's intercession, on his suffering for us, on the cross, on the resurrection, on his all-sufficiency, on his atonement, on his great love, on his mercy. The list is endless. And this all seems to happen more intensely when we are gathered and surrounded by people who are intensely obsessed with the same thing. Have you ever noticed when the music drowns out and you just hear hundreds of voices singing, you all of a sudden realize, I'm not alone. Eugene Peterson once said, no amount of solitary reading or prayer makes up for the humble immersion in the life and worship of the church. Because for some crazy reason, our joy is not just connected to, but it's accentuated by each other's praise of God. 
where we are like a fun house of mirrors, bouncing and reflecting the glory off of one another and ultimately heavenward where we can rejoice in him who we know. We gather for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. Some of you are consumed with the cares of this life. You're here this afternoon because you need to be consumed with Jesus Christ. As we sing together, I pray that the voices of your brothers and sisters will help to retune you and your affections to Jesus Christ this day. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus because of your spilt blood, knowing that even though you are a consuming fire of holiness, we can approach you with humble confidence, the mercy seat of Jesus, asking for help in time of need, and we are a church that needs help. Not self-help, not therapy, not, medi not uh, medicating on various things. We need the presence of God. We thank you that the presence of God is already here, so we pray that you would make us strangely aware of it, that you would meet us in this occasion for your glory and for our joy. Heal us right now, God, in the presence of God. In Jesus' name.